Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. Anthropologists believe that a cave painting in the Czech Republic is the earliest example of a map that we have. The markings seem to represent local mountains, valleys, and rivers. It isn't hard to understand that for millennia we've wanted to do what we can to identify where we are and what is around us. These ancient peoples obviously did what they could do to construct something that helped them comprehend their natural surroundings. The features on the map were of the fields and hunting grounds that they depended upon. Although unconfirmed by leading historical cartographers, there is also probably a section of river on the map that is designated as catch and release, fly fishing only. Regardless of the authenticity of Neolithic special regulation waters, generations of anglers have relied heavily upon maps. There's a lot of water around, and without a map there might be countless hours of fruitless scouting or fishing. Some might find this adventurous or the purest form of experiencing nature. These people might be unemployed or otherwise burdened by too much free time. The rest of us, to one degree or another, utilize maps. Even in the few decades that I've been fishing, I've employed a number of forms of maps. When I started out, I remember seeking the printed out or hand-drawn maps from fly shops. These were probably the timeliest, with scrawled notes and up-to-the-minute corrections. Copied versions of copies from time immemorial, these maps represent a strong, personal engagement. Scale isn't really the forte of such maps, with poorly rendered houses and fences attempting to serve as the distinguishing features around an otherwise nondescript squiggly line. This led to using a topographic map in tandem with the fly shop maps. Although by no means technical, topographic maps did provide a relative wealth of information. Not only were there elevation lines to determine stream gradient, there were shortcuts, land designations, and those ubiquitous fish-with-a-hook icons that seem to be scattered randomly. Especially useful for high-elevation, small-stream trout fishing, a stack of topo maps was always in the back seat. 
However, I couldn't get away from my hand-drawn heritage. Highlighter was used to designate special regulations, and asterisks marked parking options. Grease stains marked where to get barbecue. A lot of this was prior to the explosion of the internet. The web is so incredibly valuable for information gathering in nearly every facet of fly fishing. I can't imagine planning a trip, getting water levels, or researching where I'll be getting dinner after a day on the water without the internet. But even the best sites are often lacking when trying to get specific and comprehensive stream details. Interestingly enough, I've encountered a number of websites that simply scan and upload old maps. Virginia features an image of a hand-drawn Mossy Creek map on the Virginia Department of Game and Inland Fisheries website. Guidebooks exist on the other end of the spectrum. These are often overkill. Like an encyclopedia, they cover everything, just a little bit. Sometimes, these do have hand-drawn maps, but the detail level stops at road crossings or railroad tracks. You can usually tell what part of the state the author is from or fishes the most, as the descriptions are significantly more in-depth and written with more gusto. Although they have the potential to be quickly out of date as it relates to regulations or access, the descriptions and insights do offer a good synopsis of unfamiliar waters. I have a stack of these, most of them functionally obsolete and underutilized, but they do fill up my bookshelf, so there's that. The first time I fished the Battenkill in Vermont a few years back, I stopped into the Orvis flagship store for some guidance. For such storied water, there is not a whole lot available online as it relates to how to fish the river. I just wanted to ask where I might find good access and avoid the bulk of kayakers on a beautiful summer weekend. To my surprise, the employee at the fly fishing counter pulled out a Xerox map and began drawing lines, arrows, and margin notes. Immediately I felt prepared. This guy could have been sending me to my imminent doom, but I had confidence in his instructions. I was also relieved to not have to buy some laminated, trifold map with a bunch of unnecessary information. I just wanted a little bit of knowledge, and it was offered freely and tangibly. I could, quite literally, take it with me. I keep a lot of fishing stuff in the name of nostalgia. Too much, in fact. I have a stack of old licenses and trout unlimited calendars that I've packed and moved more than I've looked at them. But if I could do it all over again, I wish I would have saved some of those fly shop maps. The first time I was given a map of the Latort in Pennsylvania. Arkansas White River access points. Memorabilia like that is much more real linked to where I've fished and how I've come to know those places. The reality is, nothing is going to ever be an adequate replacement for time on the stream with a local and seasoned angler. Whether it be fishing with an acquaintance or a guide, no media is going to be as helpful or as on-stream experience. But maps that have been given in conjunction with specific information are the next best thing. Combining technical advice with stained black lines is a surefire way to increase success on a new stream. Plus, there's a certain charm to sitting in your car, looking at a map with a scribbled copse of pine trees circled in pen and looking upstream to see that precise location. That's where you'll fish, and that's where you'll fish with a little more confidence. I still can't help but think that reading maps is a lost art. What began with plugging an address into MapQuest a decade ago evolved into simple smartphone GPS navigation that we're used to today. A Delorme Atlas would be about as foreign to your average elementary school student as a book written in cuneiform. Many millennials wouldn't fare much better. I could go on about the potential deficiencies of not knowing how to read a map math applications, special awareness, and just general problem solving. But more pertinent to you and to me is the fact that being proficient in reading maps can open up a world of fly fishing possibilities. 
You've probably heard it a million times before, but if you stick to the popular and well-marked streams, you're missing out on some amazing fishing and some real adventure. Short of just taking off into the wild, you're going to need to utilize a map in some capacity to find water and, more importantly, water with fish in it. While a primer in cartography might be needed, that's not something I feel compelled to lay out today. And although nothing will ever take the place of being able to read a topographic map and make an educated decision, there are some great tools that can be an entry point in exposing an angler to using maps. Again, the fly fishing guidebooks have sometimes crude illustrations that give basic maps of watersheds. By coupling these drawings with the descriptions in the books themselves and landmarks you may already be familiar with, you should be able to make some deductions about where else fish might be. Fly shops, of course, have similar maps that highlight hot spots to help visiting anglers. It might be tempting to just to head to access point A, B, or C, but leaning on some basic reading the water skills, a fly fisher with even a little bit of experience can make some good assumptions of what new water might be worth a shot. Many state fish and game agencies will actually provide maps for the purpose of explaining where catch and release waters begin and end private property extends to the bank, or some other reason. These can do a good job of keeping you in the good graces of local game warden or property owners, but they can also illuminate a lot by what they do not show. So here are a few things you can look for. First of all, what's upstream and what's downstream? Unless there's a dam, a fence, or some other major obstruction, fish will move all over a body of water. And sometimes, not even those aforementioned barriers can stop fish. As long as angling is legal, fishing above or below the water that is managed by the state can yield some great results, and chances are some real solitude. Secondly, that stream that you're looking at looks like the other stream on the map. If two mountain creeks have nearly identical flows and gradients, they should have similar ecosystems and fisheries. One might have a certain designation that gives it more publicity, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it is better. In some cases, there's a legitimate reason for rivers getting labeled, but in others, especially in locations where there's a lot of trout water, it can be relatively trivial. And thirdly, you know, if all streams being equal, you know, don't be afraid of fishing somewhere new. Even if it is delayed harvest, a little further away or just different, being a creature of habit can have its benefits, but in fly fishing, the adventure is a big part of the fun. Pouring over a map, Figuring out someplace new to try, and then planning your attack can be a really enjoyable aspect of this pursuit. Plus, there's some real ownership when you figure it out on your own. So, whether you hop online or break open that old gazetteer, taking a few minutes to look at your favorite lake or river can pay off significantly. You'll learn things about waters you're familiar with, and potentially discover all sorts of new opportunities. Plus, you'll be participating in a lost art, cartography angling cartography to be more specific, which is always a great way to get a little bit of culture. So that's a little bit of information and some thoughts I have on maps. Do you have any map experiences, map stories? Do you hate maps? Would you prefer it if maps didn't exist? Did you have a terrible experience where you drove into a river because you had a large map folded out in front of you while you were driving? I'd love to hear it. I wouldn't love to hear that that happened, but if that did happen, I would be interested in hearing, if you know what I mean. But yeah, feel free to share your stories about maps, your experiences with them, maybe a particular fly shop that you know of that produces excellent maps. 
I remember the old Yellow Breaches Outfitters in Bowling Springs, Pennsylvania had a handwritten and Xeroxed over and over again to the point where they would be almost illegible and they'd have to go back over them with pen to show you access points in the Yellow Breaches and Big Spring and the Latorte and some of these other rivers. But like I mentioned earlier in the podcast, I didn't save any of these. They wouldn't be worth any money and they probably wouldn't be suitable for framing, but just for personal enjoyment and reminiscing and that awful impulse of nostalgia, it'd be awesome if I had those maps, especially from the first time I fished these streams that were so important. I even think about the Batten Kill, and it's a stream I haven't fished a whole bunch, but at the same time, it was a profound moment to get that map and have an employee of the largest fly fishing company to not sell me something, but to give me something and have a conversation. And he wrote his notes, then he handed to me, and I continued to make notes. And again, it's only profound in its personal impact, but that would be something cool for me to keep, and I didn't. And maybe it's good to not be a pack rat, but at the same time, those are things that as I talk about it, as I write about it, as I think about it, as I share those things with my kids or other people I fish with, it might be cool to have a file folder with that stuff in it. But again, I also have a large stack of old topographic maps and guidebooks that are all written in. I'd never write in books. I, I feel like it's almost sinful. However, on guidebooks and on maps, I will write notes all over the place so I don't have to cross-reference, flip back and forth to try to figure out, well, they say this, and then the map has these sort of designations. How do I dovetail the two? So instead of flipping back and forth while I'm sitting on the side of the highway, I like to mark up my maps. So maps are good. Maps help us. And like I also mentioned, maps cannot help us just fish where the map shows but maps can give us a lot of great information on where else we can fish that's around where the map shows. So get out there, use a map, whether that be Google Earth or whether that be an old fold-out map that you've had in the glove box for a long time. Uh, definitely employ those in your fishing this season and in the coming seasons. This week on castingacross.com, two articles. The first one's called Seasons, and this is a, a little bit of a different article, and this was one that I actually really struggled with. So not to give you too much of the how the sausage is made as far as writing on Casting Across, but usually I have an idea of what I want to write at least a week in advance, and I kind of chip away at it in my head and kind of get it into a, a, a final form. And then for the website, I don't do a whole lot of editing. You might say, I read your stuff. I know you don't do a lot of editing. But uh, it's not a, a super polished product. Some of the, the posts are, especially when I write about somebody, whether they be a guide or uh, part of the industry and they're talking about their product, that's when I really want to put my best foot forward. But when I'm just talking about my own thoughts or my tips and tricks and stuff like that, I just want to give you kind of what I would give you in a conversation. So not a whole lot of editing, kind of like what you get in the podcast. There's not a whole lot of editing that goes on here. You hear my ums, you hear my uhs, you hear my stutters and things like that. So the, the writing is like that also. So this particular article, I had in my head the fact that there's been these two times in my life where I fished a lot. Now, I do get to fish a lot with four kids and with a, a great job that keeps me very occupied and with all sorts of other things. I don't fish as much as a lot of other people fish, and I probably don't fish as much as it seems like I fish from the writing and the social media and all that sort of stuff, but I still get to fish a lot. But there's been two periods in my life where I have fished so much 
they were two seasons, and I wanted to write about that. And I feel like this is an article I'm going to revisit sometime in the future, but I wrote about how there are these two seasons where I feel like I was given the gift of a lot of fishing. And one was a season of fishing on Big Hunting Creek in Maryland, and this was the immediate months prior to me getting engaged. And I had a lot of time to think, a lot of time in my head, and that was really important. A lot of time with uh, friends having conversations, real good, soul-searching conversations, not necessarily on the water, but on the drive up and on the drive back. And we were out multiple times a week, and we were out early in the morning, and we were out at weird hours. And the fishing was good, but a lot of the fishing kind of melted together but the lasting impact was the familiarity I gained in the stream and kind of the, the, the benefit of the angling that came with that, but then also just the, the time away and the time on the way to the river and the time on the river and how that really ministered, not just to my soul, but also to kind of my decision-making. A second similar season that I didn't explicitly mention in the article was prior to me changing careers. I was in social work before I went into the ministry. And really a lot of thoughts about making that switch and making the move to go from Pennsylvania up to New England. And there was a summer where I was just on the Latorte and a couple other spring creeks in Pennsylvania multiple times a week, um, sometimes five or six times a week. And it, the cool thing was, and my wife's not here to give me the the thumbs up on this, but I don't feel like it really got in the way of life. It was, again, a gift where it just seamlessly fit into how my weeks looked, how my days looked. And I, I do feel like it was a gift, like the good Lord gave me that time where I could focus on thinking the thoughts I needed to think. And it was just in that context of fishing. And so it wasn't that I was not thinking about the fishing when I came up to a changeling situation or when I got into an awesome fish or a stretch of fishing or hatches. My focus was there, but you know, there's a lot of margin time even when you're fishing. And so looking back on those seasons, I really do see those as real treasures in not just my fly fishing past, but just kind of in my formative years in the last 15, 20 years. So has that happened to you? Do you feel like there's been times where it's not just a period of time where you fished a lot, but you fished a lot and looking back, you say, wow, that was also a period of time that was super vital for me as a person. I learned some big lesson. I gained some insight about who I am or I formed a friendship or a relationship. So Seasons, as an article, it's kind of this doughy, nymphal uh, work that I think I'm going to revisit. And I haven't done that a lot with a lot of my articles on Casting Across, but I definitely think I'm going to be doing that with this one. I've said a lot about it here in the last few minutes. The next article was called Fly Fishing Party Time. And kind of a lame title, but uh, I went to a fly fishing fundraiser this week for a program that I mentioned in a recent podcast, Elevate Youth. So the holiday party was put on by Why Not? And Why Not, again, it's a fly fishing event organization that does primarily activities in New England and in New York. 
but they have a lot of connections with local guides and companies within the fly fishing sphere, so there's always lots of giveaways. They have a partnership with Sweetwater Brewery right now, and so they always kick in lots of product. Uh, this one was at Fenway Johnny's, which is a restaurant right next to Fenway Park. So if you at all care about the Red Sox, I guess you could feel connected and close. But the point of it was, again, to raise funds for Elevate Youth, this program that gets kids in the outdoors, not just any kid, but kids that are kind of cut off from the outdoors because they are in a very urban setting and they might not have the means to otherwise get there. So I've talked about that and written about Elevate Youth all over the place. So you can definitely just check that on the website, put that in the search bar and you'll be able to find more information about that program. But this was an awesome thing because a lot of money was raised for that program, but it was just a good time connecting with people I haven't connected with before and then reconnecting with people I haven't talked to maybe since the holiday party last year or the fly fishing show circuit back in the winter and spring. But it was an excellent time, just a, a good time hanging out with people and again, supporting a worthy cause. So this article is basically saying, don't be cynical about stuff like this. If you think it's a big marketing scam or you think that this is all about just promoting companies, I'll freely admit these companies, their name gets out, but how else would you have them get their name out? And they're giving things away. They're donating products and they're donating time to a worthwhile cause where the money doesn't go back to them and their hats and their sunglasses and things like that, but it goes to this uh, cause. And events like this happen all over the country. And I see the poo-pooing of events like this on social media. And if you are going to be fishing during that time, then you know what? Then don't feel like you have to make a big stink of it. If you have to tie flies because you're going fishing early in the morning, awesome. Spend your time doing that. But this is a worthwhile cause, and it's a lot of fun. And even if this isn't your scene, and again, I'm not here to convince you that this is the kind of thing you should be doing if you don't just enjoy this scene. But there's nothing inherently wrong with it. In fact, I would say that it is more than neutral. It's a positive thing. So I wrote about that a little bit on fly fishing party time. This week's recommendation on the podcast is a little product I actually picked up as a giveaway at the holiday party. And it is the Scientific Angler's Rod Sleeve. Now, if you are a person who loves fly rods, and I love fly rods, but if you're somebody who's a little bit more fanatical about your love for fly rods, or if you're a rod builder, then what I'm about to say may be very offensive. When I'm going from spot to spot, I will break my four-piece rod into two sections, kind of reel up the slack, and just throw it in the back of my car. I know that's not good. I know that can damage the female ferals. I know that can damage the guides. But I do my best to be careful. This little product, the rod sleeve from Scientific Angler, is kind of a material. It's a, a little bit like a, a Chinese finger trap. It is a braided nylon that's a little bit rigid. And what it's meant to do is to slide over your rod 
whether it's in one piece or it's broken down in half and kind of keep everything together so that rod tip's not going to swing away from the rest of your rod and potentially get into trouble. Uh, furthermore, you know, things aren't going to slide around a whole lot in your car. Your hook isn't going to get hooked into the material this thing's made out of. So if you have a, a rig with multiple flies, you know, that bottom fly you've got in your reel or in your hook keeper, but then that top fly is just swinging around wildly and getting hooked on who knows what your upholstery or uh, your fly line or whatever but with this rod sleeve it all stays compact and compressed and also safe so for between 12 and 30 bucks it's 12.95 for the smallest one it's for the half size so like a nine foot or a ten foot rod broken in half all the way up to a full length spay rod for thirty dollars this is a cool little product Honestly, I can't think of how you would rig something like this up on your own that would do exactly what it does. There's uh, even a little um, kind of bungee situation where it stays secured to the butt of your rod so that it doesn't slide off and, and effectively uh, eliminate its, its value. It's a cool little product. It's a little thing you could throw in someone's stocking for Christmas or just grab uh, online or at your fly shop or through scientific anglers themselves. I'll put a link to it on the bottom of this podcast on castingacross.com. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com where you'll find more info on this podcast and three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Mm-hmm.